Let me add my welcome to John's. My name is Matty. It's good to see so many here this morning, uh, old friends in town again, uh, visitors with us, uh, and of course regulars. Everyone is so welcome. Uh, you join us this morning as we continue our series looking at the book of Joel. So if you're using one of our black church Bibles, please turn to page 761. If you're using your own Bible, you'll need to find your way to Joel chapter 2. I'll be reading and preaching on verses 12 to 27. So Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 27. But as we're turning that up, let me lead us in prayer. Father, we pray that as we come now to hear and receive from your word, you would still our hearts, help us to hear it free from distraction. And we pray that as we do, as we've just been singing, this would all indeed be to your praise and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. So Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And we'll skip down to verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foil of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Amen. Well, I'll start with uh, a confession. Uh, this won't be a surprise to many of you who know me. I am no great connoisseur of fine art. Uh, so I just want to throw that out there right away. So when I say that my attention was grabbed this week by the title of a painting, I know not of what I speak. But there's a painting which hangs, I'm sure you know it, uh, in the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. It's called From Darkness, the Light. And it represents the scientific process, shedding light on things which we don't yet understand, according to Wikipedia. But it's also that title, From Darkness, the Light. It is a really appropriate one to note the shift in tone between Joel 2, verse 11, and 2, verse 12. If you were with us last week, if you read Joel 1, 1 to 2, 11, I think the light that we see is dark. 
If you describe the, the colors and the light of the first part of Joel, you would say it's full of darkness and gloom. We read that it, the day of the Lord, which Joel is promising, is a day of darkness, gloom, clouds, and thick darkness, a day which, chapter 2, verse 11, Joel concludes, no one can endure. That was a really sobering thing for us to reflect on last week. But if we were left in verse 11 feeling quite gloomy, we can then feel the relief of 2 verse 12. Yet, even now, even with the reality of God's coming great and terrible judgment, yet even now, there is hope. As we'll see this morning, that hope for the people of Joel's day and for us rests entirely on God himself, who he is, what he has done. At the heart of the book of Joel and at the heart of all of the Bible, we find a God who is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And because that's the case, because that's who he is, well, for us, there is much to rejoice in this morning as we gaze at this compassionate and gracious God together and see how he responds to the depths of human sin. I want us to see that all of the action in the rest of Joel chapter 2 centers on the grace and mercy of God. And we see that displayed in a gracious call to return and a gracious promise to restore. Those are the two headings under which we'll look at these verses together. So first, a gracious call to return that we notice right away in those first couple of verses. It's repeated in verses 12 to 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Then later in verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Like we said before, that return in the Old Testament, it's the equivalent of repent in the New Testament. It represents this decisive, wholehearted turning away from sin and towards God, walking with him in covenant faithfulness. With that in mind then, a few things we need to notice about this call to return or repent, what it needs to look like. It needs to be genuine and wholehearted. The fact here that it's meant to be accompanied by fasting and weeping and mourning, these were the normal signs of grief and repentance of the day. This was a normal and expected scene to see people tearing their clothes and going without food and weeping. So they were appropriate outward signs of grieving over sin. The Lord is graciously saying, the outward sign isn't enough though. Anyone can rip a shirt or, or, or have a bit of a cry, but what the people need to do is to rend their hearts, not their garments. In other words, to not just go through the motions of grieving over sin, but to ensure that this returning to the Lord is actually springing from a deep-seated desire to walk with Him in faithfulness. And we saw last week that will involve self-reflection. It will involve a sober acknowledgement of sin and then a turning to God with all of the heart. It should be genuine and wholehearted. It should also be humble and not presumptuous. I don't know what we make of the fact that we read in verse 14, who knows whether God will not turn and relent. It's another little signifier here of just how bad the sin problem in Israel is. These same words are spoken 
by the king of Nineveh in the story of Jonah, a nation which doesn't know God, which is enemies with God's people. Here it's spoken on behalf of God's people, just another sign of how deep-rooted their sin problem is, and a sign as well that things are starting to turn around for them. Last week we saw that they were presumptuous, taking God's grace for granted. Now they're humble, acknowledging that it is entirely because of his mercy that they're dependent on him. So returning to the Lord should be humble and not presumptuous, and it should also be corporate and appropriate. That seems to be the point of verses 15 to 16 there. We get these repeated phrases in those verses. They have to, to blow a trumpet call. Last week, that was like an air raid siren. This week, it's a call to corporate action. These terms that are repeated, consecrate, call, assemble, gather, they all come up twice. It's a picture of making every effort to get the whole people of God, everyone in, people who are on their honeymoon are not excluded, nursing babies are not excluded. Everyone needs to come and answer this call. This call to what exactly? Well, to corporate, appropriate worship and repentance. Hence the language of consecration here and the detail that leading all of this is the priest's. God's ministers leading the people in corporate worship and repentance towards the Lord their God. But the most significant thing we need to notice again is that all of this springs from who God is and not what they can do. The hope of the people here rests entirely on God's character. And that's why, even in this gracious call to repentance, there is a gracious self-revelation of God. Verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The people then much like us today, deserve disaster because of sin. But God, in his kindness, relents over it, not giving sin what it deserves because of who he is, gracious, merciful, long-suffering and slow to anger, abounding in the steadfast love we've been thinking and singing about all morning. This is how God has revealed himself. It's how he revealed himself to Moses in a foundational moment in the history of Israel. It's how he keeps revealing himself all through the story of the Bible. And the fact that this is who God is, that is their only hope. It's also our only hope. If Joel 1.1 to 2.11 leaves us with the sobering reality of how severe the sin problem is, how worthy of condemnation and wrath we are, well, these words invite us to hear a God who graciously calls sinners to return to him, calls sinners to repentance puts me in mind of the first words spoken by Jesus in Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. 
That's how a gracious God deals with the depths of human sin. Ultimately, we know by sending his own son to call sinful people who've wandered from the love of God to return to him and to know the forgiveness that he brings. So if that's a call that you have not yet answered, let me invite you, as I often do, to answer it this morning. Turn to Jesus and and ask him to forgive you your sins. Ask God to restore you to to know him as, as your father because of what he's done for you in Christ. If you'd like to know more about what that means, please do come and grab me afterwards. We see here a gracious call from a loving God. If you've not yet answered it, it would be a wonderful call to answer, and we'd love to help you do that. But for all of us, I hope we see the powerful reminder here of how active we need to be in our ongoing returning, our ongoing repentance to the Lord. If Joel is a book which rightly sobers us about the reality of sin, it's also one which reminds us of the God we're sinning against, how awesome he is, and how awesomely gracious he is. I think last week motivated us to repent because it's so hard-hitting. This week encourages and helps us to repent because God is so wonderfully gracious. So this part of Joel should fill us with humble confidence. Again, not presumption on his grace, but humble confidence because of who he has revealed himself to be, a gracious and merciful God. It's interesting here that they say, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. For those of us who know and trust in the Lord Jesus, we don't have that uncertainty We have a God who loves to answer the prayers of all who repent, all who truly repent and trust in his beloved son. And so if we find ourselves challenged and sobered by the reality of sin in Joel, we should find ourselves humbly confident and thankful that God has done something about the problem of sin and invites us to return to him. Wonderfully though, There's more going on here. It's not just a call to repent. It's not just a reset that's promised by God here. In this section, we also see a gracious promise to restore. That's our our second heading. We see here that God hears the prayers of his people. We read that he became jealous, i.e. mindful of his steadfast love for his protection over his people. It says here that he shows pity on them. It's, it's not like the pity that a parent might show a child. You know when a child's nagging you again and again, please, 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 can I do this or that? And they might say eventually, oh, fine, whatever. I'll let you off the hook this time. God's pity is not like that. Elsewhere, the word that's used here, it's used to mean to spare people from wrath for the Lord to show his covenant compassion. It's a a much more deep thing then than what we understand by pity. And that compassion is spelled out in really vivid detail because we see here not a picture of God reluctantly resetting the sin counter to zero and giving his people another chance. Now we see the covenant-keeping God lavishly, abundantly blessing his people 
in ways that were really recognizable and fitting for their situation. I wonder if you were here with us last week or you've had a chance to read 1, 1 to 2, 11 of Joel, do you notice just how many callbacks there are? How appropriate to their situation these blessings are? The whole section is just brimming with the language of curse reversal. As God so graciously, so generously undoes all of the devastation and decay that we saw last week. I want to just pick out a few ways in which that presents itself. Verse 20 gives us this promise, I will remove the northerner far from you. Now I know in our church family we've We're blessed to have people from Manchester, from Liverpool, and at least one very proud Yorkshireman. I just want to say you don't have to worry. Uh, You are seen, you are loved, uh, and uh, God's leveling up agenda spreads far beyond the home counties, if I can put it like that. This is not about removing northerners far from us, thankfully not. Now, the rest of this verse helps us to understand that northerner is shorthand for invading soldier. For them, north was the direction that attacks would most likely come from. It would be a bit like God saying to the people in Ukraine, I will remove the easterner far from you. That's borne out by the rest of the language here about vanguards and rear guards. It is an image of God removing the devastation of invasion. That presented itself in two ways last week. The, the present reality of an invading swarm of locusts and how they foreshadow a much more terrifying invasion of the forces of the Lord. And God says here, I will remove the northerner far from you. He's picking up that military language that we saw last week and saying to his people, there will come a day when the fear of invasion will be no more. We also see a promise of a restored land Just a quick compare and contrast exercise for us. Last week, amidst all the devastation of the locusts, we read that the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, the grain is destroyed, the wine dries and the oil languishes. We read how the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed. And we notice here in chapter 2, the fantastic contrast of verses 21 and 22. Fear not, O land. Fear not, you beasts of the field. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. We had a picture last week of paradise lost. Here's a picture of paradise regained. As God promises that his place, his land, will once again become a land of plenty, a place of luscious produce and satisfied livestock. That image of the vine and the fig tree is used once again. These are common images throughout the Old Testament for the blessing, the abundance of God's promised land. Last week they were languishing and dried up. Here they're flourishing again. It's a specific marker of God promising to bless in the ways that he has promised he will bless. And that brings us to Another blessing that we notice here, a satisfied people. Because, of course, all of this blessing doesn't begin and end with the fields and the cows. Obviously, those blessings have material impact on the people, God's people. They themselves are also called to be glad, O children of Zion, 
and rejoice greatly in the Lord your God. After all, how can they not rejoice in him? How can they not return to and rejoice in a God who has completely transformed their situation from barrenness, devastation, and drought to such abundant provision and blessing? I think the wonderful image which captures all of what's going on in this section so vividly and so neatly sums up how this is a completely appropriate and wonderful reversal of all that we saw last week. It's the promise of verse 25. We can maybe imagine an Israelite listening to these words, looking all around them at the devastation that the locust plague has brought. And maybe as they wonder, something like, has God abandoned us? Will he ever relent over this disaster? Have we left it too late this time? Well, if that is something of their thinking, they then hear the Lord through his prophet saying, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. Wonderfully, God's grace is present, even as he allows his judgment to fall on his people. All of that curse, all of that devastation, is not only done away with, but the Lord promises there comes a day when the years of dread that the locusts have brought will be paid back in full. It's a really tremendous comfort to God's people then as they see the devastation surrounding them. It also lifts our eyes and our hearts to the higher reality going on throughout Joel the heavenly reality. As we look all around us at the devastation that our sin and rejection of God has caused every day in a broken world and in broken God-rejecting hearts, well, this verse helps us to remember that as we trust in Jesus, we have confidence that the curse of sin will be reversed and that God will make all things new. I once heard a story of someone who came to faith because of the witness of his sister. Very sadly, she died from a bleed on the brain. She was only in her early 20s, and she'd gone from being a really active and sporty young woman to being completely paralyzed down one side of her body. Her brother wasn't a believer. He was really angry, as you can imagine. And he said to her, why aren't you still trusting in this God when he's allowed this to happen to you. And she said to him, these are the words which put him on his journey to faith. Because when I see Jesus, I'll run to him. I've always thought that to be a really beautiful picture of being with Jesus, of what it looks like for God to restore all broken things, to make all the sad things come untrue all of the pain and devastation and decay of a sin-sick, God-rejecting world, all of that will be done away with because of what God has done for us in Christ. We can take this promise of the the years of the locust being paid back and restored and see how it applies to a God who in Christ promises to make all things new. 
And helpfully, I hope that draws us to see the greatest blessing of all that's revealed in this passage. All these details about the grain and the wine and the oil, how they all flow in abundance. Remember, that doesn't just mean they can enjoy food. It also means that they have the materials they need to worship God again in the way that they're commanded to. They're invited to know him and to worship him once again. And that's the real satisfaction of verse 26. That's what ultimately drives them to praise the Lord. The ultimate blessing, the ultimate promise that my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Again, we can maybe sense the relief that these words would have been to people who must by now have felt so distant from God, who must have doubted whether he would hear or answer their prayers. The promise of a day when shame will never fall on them again, and when they shall know completely that they dwell with God, and he dwells with them. Once again, we know that that is all the more certain for us because God has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, the eternal Word made flesh and dwelling among His people. And because Jesus lived, died, and rose, we can therefore hear with all the more confidence similar words to these in Joel, but at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation which draws heart and mind towards the coming day when the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We see in this passage a gracious call to return to the Lord, to repent, to keep doing that in all of the Christian life. And we're reminded here that he really is a Lord worthy of following and praising with our whole lives. So all of this gives extra reason for confident and joy-filled praise. You've seen already in Joel that the day of the Lord is a day of great and terrible judgment. We should be sobered by that. We should fight sin urgently in the light of it. But we see here that because of who God is, a gracious, compassionate God of steadfast love, well, then we can hear his promise to restore a fallen world once and for all and to bring his people with him to enjoy his presence forever. And we can look to the day of the Lord with joy-filled, confident hope. It is not only a day to be feared and dreaded. Wonderfully, for the believer, it is a day to be looked to and longed for. It is a day which helps us live lives of hope and joy in the present as we look to the certain future of restoration that God has won for us in Christ. With that in mind, then, let me lead us as we pray.
and thank God for these things. Father God, we thank you for how gracious and compassionate you are as we've been reflecting on all morning how you are a God of steadfast love displayed so clearly and abundantly in Christ. And so we pray that you would help us to hear this call to return to you, to walk closely with you, keep short accounts with you. We pray that we'd be all the more confident and motivated to do that as we see just how clearly you're such a God of compassion how clearly and abundantly you've promised to bless those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we ask and pray all these things. Amen.